the fabric of life, the fabric of phenomena is absolutely interconnected, interdependent. So our, our happiness and suffering happens through and with others. You know, if we are alone, suspended in space, love, suffering, we have no meaning. But, you know, friendship, love, what meaning would it have if we were alone in the universe? We are so connected with human beings that the pursuit of selfish happiness, sense of exacerbated self-love will never work. You know, Romain Roland, the French writer, said, if your pursuit of selfish happiness is the only purpose of your life, only goal of your life, your life will soon be goalless. Mm. My name is Benoit Kim, and together, we will be exploring the depth of the human mind. Today's conversation with an ordained Buddhist monk known as the world's happiest man will redefine what happiness is and how we all can sustain this elusive state despite the ebbs and flows of life. Mathieu Ricard is an ordained French Buddhist monk, humanitarian, internationally best-selling author of 22 books, photographer, and a scientist. Mathieu received his PhD in molecular genetics under the 1965 Nobel Prize laureate Francis Jacob, and he's also the Dalai Lama's official French interpreter. Expect to learn about the wisdom of the world's happiest man, the difference between happiness and pleasure, how to be happy sustainably, the Buddha nature, how to do compassion meditation, the scientific evidence of altruism, and much, much more. Also, please check out Matthew's forthcoming book, The Notebooks of a Wandering Monk, detailing his Buddhist training and all the great wisdom he's obtained through his teachers in the Himalayas in the last 50 plus years. Welcome to Discover More. Discover More, Discover More. is a show, a show for independent thinkers by independent thinkers. Matthew, many blessings to be here with you today and welcome to Discover More. Very happy to be with you. So <laughs> as the world's happiest man and one of the most la la. <laughs> and one of the most well-known Buddhist monks that even Jay Shetty talks a lot about, what is the definition of happiness and how is it different from pleasure? So first thing, thank you so much. It's nice we get that question behind from the start. So, you know, as a disclaimer in the name of all my scientist friends, how we could know the level of happiness of a billion human beings. So obviously it doesn't make sense. It's a nice journalistic formula which somehow sticks to me. <laughs> so it was uh, it came out after in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, we did some study on neuroscience and meditation. Uh, with the long-term meditators, we did between 10,000 to 60,000 hours of meditation. And we were more uh, precisely studying compassion. And compassion occurs, uh, unconditional compassion for all sentient beings. And it happens that it it uh, increased the uh, level of gamma frequency to a magnitude that was not previously recorded in neuroscience. Not only me, of course, all my colleagues who did the same. It's, it's not a personal thing. It's a, it's a result of long-term training. So altruism, compassion, benevolence also somehow related to positive mental states. So anyway, nothing to do with happiness. There's no happiness center in the brain. It's a result of a cluster of basic human qualities. But some journalists found this story interesting. And, you know, I think it's important to distinguish happiness 
and define it better. You know, Aristotle says the goal of goals, everything we do is in the pursuit of happiness, and happiness is a goal in itself. As Aristotle say, and also Buddhists say, because we need to get rid of the suffering and its cause, it will be better to know a little bit what it is, otherwise we are shooting arrows in the dark. So anyway, the first, I think, distinction very clear is the continuum of happiness and pleasant sensation is different. There's nothing wrong with pleasant sensation. Don't get me wrong. You know, to get a hot shower after walking in the snow is fabulous, but 24 hours is not very pleasant. You know, listening to the most beautiful music is great. 24 hours might be a torture. It was used in Guantanamo to torture people. So pleasure is great, but it changes in nature, becomes neutral or aversive with time. You can feel pleasure while everyone else is suffering around you. And basically, it's more like pursuit of hedonic happiness. It's not a state of way of mm -hmm. being. It's a fleeting experience, like a candle that uses it up itself. While if we define happiness as a way of being in the world, that means a cluster of fundamental human qualities like compassion, benevolence, altruistic love, you know, resilience, inner strength, inner freedom, sense of deep sense of serenity, those actually are not vulnerable to time and circumstances. The more you experience it, the more they become deeper, the more they grow, the more they become solid. It's like the platform you are on life. It can go up and down. And you come back to that even we have joy and sorrows, but it's this your baseline. And this can be enhanced because every of those important human qualities, say like compassion or sense of inner strength or inner freedom, can be cultivated as skills. That means you can enhance your basic level of happiness. So that's, I think, the, the main thing. So if we could say in two words, it's an optimal or an exceptionally healthy state of mind that perdures throughout different emotional state, events of life, and it's like the depth of the ocean. There could be a calm ocean on the surface or big waves, but the depth of the ocean is always there. So that's a... a short take on happiness and pleasure. Of course, uh, I didn't expect you to address the timeless question of the pursuit of happiness, but I do want to go in on compassion that you talked about. And as a psychotherapist, right, as a social scientist myself, I do agree that happiness is a clusters of symptoms or clusters of states. It's not just a singular neurobiological or neurochemical thing. It's just like depression. Depression is a cluster of symptoms. It's not just a single sadness. In your most recent New York Times article interview, Matthew, with David, you shared with him that Dalai Lama's biggest advice to you after the retreat was meditate with compassion, meditate with compassion in the middle, and end the meditation with more compassion. So can you talk more about why do you feel like compassion is a key ingredient in the pursuit of happiness? It's compassion together with wisdom. Those are like the two wings of a bird. And uh, you can't fly just with one wing. You don't train one wing first, a second. Mm. Those have to come together. You have to have a correct understanding of reality. And then out of that, you feel boundless love and compassion for those who suffer because of distortion of reality. So now, usually we have four components. 
this we call boundless love or benevolence. That is mis- mostly the wish may all sentient beings find happiness and the cause of happiness. And the cause of happiness is very important because if we mistake the cause of happiness and run, we may run towards happiness and actually run towards suffering and we want happiness badly and we turn our back on the cause of happiness. Sometimes we are addicted to the cause of suffering. So it, it, you see, it opens a whole field of knowing what are the causes of suffering really at different levels and what are the causes of genuine happiness. Then there is compassion. So it starts with the unconditional love. So now you may say, how you do that with a dictator, a bloody dictator, you know, Bashar al-Assad or Putin and many others we can, we can name. Well, the point is, it's different from a moral judgment. We know very well there are people who are like incredibly obnoxious and harmful and which are the cause of the death of hundreds of thousands of people. But precisely, we may wish, may, the causes that brought someone like this, the personal causes that make someone become like a completely pitiless psychopath, the cultural environment that brought someone like that in power, made those change. So when you encounter suffering, this unconditional benevolence becomes compassion, which instead of the wish, the general wish, may all beings find happiness and the cause of happiness, you now say, may all beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. So basically, compassion is unconditional benevolence applied to suffering. And then the last, the fourth one element, of compassion is impartiality. Now, you cannot just love your dear ones and your dog because all sentient beings, without exception, nobody wakes up in the morning thinking may I suffer the whole day and if possible my whole life, would like to find happiness. Even people who hate themselves, if we were given the possibility mm. to find some elements of happiness, uh, they will s- somehow take it. If we take the example of the sun, the sun shines on everyone, good and bad, close and, and far. But if you are very near because of life circumstances, say your, your companion, your, your children, your dear ones, they are close, so they get naturally more light, more warm, but not at the cost of discriminating against others. If you were decided, I'm only going as a sun to shine on my dear ones, then the light will be very narrow, not very warm, not very... Light, so actually you would love less even your loved ones if you have a very shrunk uh, sort of compassion and, and, and love. So some people, this is not realistic because there's infinite number of beings. Of course, it's not the question of saying, you know, I'm getting up in the morning and I will resolve all the suffering in the world. But at least you can ex- exclude no one from your heart. So in your mind, at least you don't exclude anyone from that wish. May they find happiness and the cause of happiness. May they be free from suffering and the cause of suffering. Even the worst dictator, you may wish, may the hatred, the indifference, the cruelty that in that person's mind may dissipate. So that's that's the point. I think wisdom is a really important component that people forget about. Because I think when people think about boundless love, our boundless capacity for love and endless capacity for compassion, people think in a very naive terms. Oh, so you give away your social security numbers, you give away bank information to a stranger as a compassionate act, but that's naivete. You still have to be grounded in realism, right? So I like the highlight of uh, wisdom there. 
Yeah, so wisdom is also tuned to reality, is to know that things are impermanent, that things are interconnected. We are not like small snooker mm. balls that sometimes interact uh -huh. and are independent in nature. The fabric of life, the fabric of phenomena is absolutely interconnected, interdependent. So our, our happiness and suffering happens through and with others. You know, if we are alone, suspended in space, love, suffering, we have no meaning. But, you know, friendship, love, what meaning would it have if we were alone in the universe? We are so connected with human beings that the pursuit of selfish happiness sense of exacerbated self-love will, will never work. You know, Romain Roland, the French writer, said if your pursuit of selfish happiness is the only purpose of your life, only goal of your life, your life will soon be goalless. Mm. And then the next step for those people is when they finally get that clear in their mind, in their hearts, they look at others and they say, well, even that person is confused deep within. Also, that person, she doesn't want to suffer. So why not be concerned by her fate. Why not wishing that she find happiness? Why not wishing that she find uh, to remedy to the cause of suffering? So, you know, step by step, you can enlarge the scope of those wishes for others to be happy and be free from suffering. This idea of, of having a boundless aspiration that all beings be happy, it is definitely possible as an aspiration. Even you know you're not going to do it. My brain is going somewhere weird. Bear with me, Mathieu. I like to make different connections and find the intersection point. So I represent yes. Christian faith, as you know, and I know you view Buddhism as a way of life, right? So in Christian faith, a lot of Christians struggle with this idea that God's grace and forgiveness is for everyone, not just for Christians, for everyone. Just like the rays of sunshine you said, Either everyone benefits from the sun or nobody. I just like to keep this open. Like, do you have any thoughts there, given the underlying theme? Possibly similar in Buddhism, which is the Buddha nature. Mm. We say that every sentient being has the Buddha nature deep within. There's no, there's basically an original goodness, not so much original sin, let's say. So we say it's like a nugget of gold. So now that nugget of gold can be buried into, you know, into rock, can be fallen in the worst garbage. Or, but gold is gold. Mm -hmm. The gold itself has not been denatured. It's not improved. Once you have cleaned it, you just reveal what it was. Now, you may ignore that. And then you will say that we are like a beggar who doesn't know that there is a nugget of gold buried under his hut, his shack. So he's rich at the same time and poor at the mm. same time. So therefore, you know, that's why we say that um, if we could bring the loving kindness and compassion is somehow a reflection of that. If we didn't have that, it, this boundless love would not come at the surface. And so the whole part of Buddhism is to actualize that treasure that we have within oneself. And so we are not really washing original bad nature which would be our start, because we say like you can clean a piece of charcoal for 100 years, it's not going to shine like gold. So removing the layers or removing the clouds that prevents us from seeing the sun, but the sun has always been shining in the sky. It's just that it was obscured for a while. So that Buddhist concept makes us also think that there's no one that is intrinsically evil. Mm. 
this could be a lot of heavy piled up upon that gold, like a mountain, and quite hard. But nevertheless, it's a bit like what Nelson Mandela said after 30 years in jail about his jailers. He said, if you look deep within, you'll always find something good deep within human beings. This reminds me of a famous story from Thailand. I think this was maybe 30 years ago where a lot of archaeologists and people, they're cleaning this famous temple in Thailand and it was a mud. It was like a mud Buddha stature, pretty big. And once they cleaned it, they realized it was a golden Buddha. But they kept it under the mud. The pursuit of enlightenment, the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of what is aligned with you is uncovering and revealing what is already within us to begin with. And you see also enlightenment is a kind of ultimate perfection. You get rid of all obscurations, all defilements, all mental toxins, all basic ignorance. So you cannot fabricate perfection. You can only uncover it. Perfection is not something you can manufacture with peace and this and that and you know, buying gadgets and putting them together and boom, there's perfection. Mm. But what you can do precisely for the goal is to remove what prevents perfection from shining forth. Speaking of enlightenment, Matthew, I read your book, your forthcoming book, The Notebooks of a Wandering Monk. You described enlightenment as a perfect awareness in the book. So can you go a little bit deeper into how you view enlightenment and whether having perfect awareness is actually beneficial for most people? Because I think having heightened, increased awareness comes with burden, if you really think about it sometimes. Well, it's not awareness in the usual sense. Mm. It's not only that, of course. So first of all, as a disclaimer, of course, I'm nothing close to enlightenment, don't make it mistaken. But, you know, in the text and receiving so many teachings. So basically, you know, enlightenment is like, first you get a room with light and shadows and gradually the shadows disappear mm. and there's only light. So light is not like something shining in the dark. It's the light of wisdom, the light of inner freedom. And so wisdom in a way, when we speak of awareness, it's not just mindfulness, being aware of this and that when you wash the dishes. <laughs> this is more like ordinary mindfulness, which is great. Awareness is that we're aware of your Buddha nature. Pure wisdom is 100%, like the center of the sun. There's not a trace of darkness in the center of the sun. Enlightenment is going from being entangled in suffering to be completely free from the cause of suffering. From delusion, deluded perception, you're perceiving the world as permanent, or to bridge the gap between appearances and reality, to know that things are impermanent, they appear, yet they are void of intrinsic existence and all that. So it's perfect wisdom. It is com completely free from mental toxins like hatred, uh, you know, uh, craving, lack of discernment, pride, arrogance, jealousy. We detail 84,000 of them, the main five ones being those. So when you are completely free from those and there you have bloomed to the ultimate level, they, they are opposite. The opposite of hatred is unconditional love. Opposite of lack of discernment is wisdom. Opposite of jealousy is rejoicing. Opposite of pride, humility, all these qualities. And especially 
the union of wisdom and compassion. So that will be, in short, enlightenment. All the shadows have gone and all the qualities have bloomed. I love your ability to make um, relatable and digestible metaphors and analogies. It's very visual. So, Matthew, in, in chapter 24, in your forthcoming book, you describe your masters and the enlightened one's ability to read minds and thoughts of others. On countless occasions, due to their perfect awareness, this is going to be a heavy question, so feel free to elaborate and go deep. We're in the heavy waters now, so... Well, you know, I'm uh, trained as a scientist, and I, I think one thing I got out of uh, you know, working six years with Francois Jacob at Pasteur Institute, and also my father, who was a very rigorous intellectual mind, Jean-Francois Rovelle, they gave me the taste for rigor. Mm -hmm. So no mess around, no, <laughs> no washy-wishy stuff. So I know perfectly well that uh, at the state of uh, knowledge we have now, of functioning of the brain, those things, we have no mechanism, no explanation of that. And I discussed that at length with my neuroscientist friend. I even spoke at a neuroscientific meeting with a few hundreds of them, and I was in dialogue with my friend Wolf Singer, with whom I do the book also at MIT Press, like the notebooks of a wandering monk called Beyond the Self. But at the same time, I cannot not uh, testify what I've been witness of. That would be not honest. So I'm not trying to convince anyone. I'm totally not in that state of mind. I just said, look, this happened to me. I was not dreaming. And as one of my friends said during that, that conference, you know, we don't think Matthew is just telling us <laughs> lie, but we, we are in big trouble if that is correct, because we don't know how to explain that. But just to give you a, a short ex example, because no matter how you look at, it's very hard to find any other explanation. So one time I was uh, in my hermitage in Darjeeling in India. So I was living in a nine foot by nine foot hermitage with an hermitage, without electricity, without water, but the most comfortable life years of my life because I was so much where I wanted to be and near my teacher. So one day, you know, I thought of doing my practice. I remember that I've gone fishing when I was young because my grandmother was going fishing. And one time near the seaside, my uncle had uh, some ponds and there were some big rats that were eating all the flowers. So he gave me a small rifle and he said, why don't you try to shoot some of those rats? And I was maybe 14 or 13. And I don't know what came in my mind because I never touched a rifle or other that. I went and shot quite far. The rat jumped, and I hope still now that I, I didn't harm that poor rat, which had done nothing to me. And then, you know, imagine for so far a fish. If we were hooked by, taken by a hook, drawn into water, and then they cut our head, we won't find it's a great thing to do. So suddenly, all this thing came clearly to my mind. You know, you put in the shoes of the others, and I said, "How could I have done that? It was mad." inflicting unnecessary suffering to another sentient being. So, so I said, I must go and see my teacher and sort of confess about that. So I went down from my hermitage, you know, about, you know, 200 yards. And I came in the room and he was sitting there. His name was Kangyu Rinpoche. He's a very great Tibetan master. And his son, at that time, I didn't speak Tibetan yet. He was interpreting for me through English. So I sort of paid homage. And as I was approaching, they bought... She said something to his son, and they both laughed. 
So anyway, when I came, he asked me directly, how many animals did you mm. kill? So, you know, there was no funny light shining, you know, something <laughs> in the... It was the most natural thing, almost like a joke. It was teasing me. But nevertheless, that was the question I had in mind. So I, I said, say, I was just going to speak about that. I said, now, you may say, well, I talked with uh, some, some of my scientists friends about that. One of them said, well, you know, there's a lot of things happening in life which have no meaning. You meet many people, if you are in a big city, many people in the day and they have no meaning. Now, you meet someone you met in Paris when you were young. So, wow, how come we just meet here by coincidence? It has meaning, but the probability of meeting that person is not lower or higher than meeting anyone else. Mm. So he said, when things have meaning, they, they strike you. But I gave him a counter example. I said, well, once when I did a book with a physicist, uh, Trin Huan Tuan, it's called The Quantum and the Lotus in English. And I was going to a TV show, a, a book uh, review show, and I walked towards my publisher to pick her up and go to the show. On the way, a taxi stops with a guy came out with a letter, with a stamp, and he said, I'm going to post that letter for you. I didn't know that guy. He was simply writing me a letter because of the books. So I said, I give it to you. I'm not posting it. Okay. Serendipity. Then we went to the show. After the show, go to have a, a drink somewhere. Well, then hail a taxi to go back. There's a guy in the street. He said, oh, I want to speak to you. I said, where are you going? So uh, let's go on the same place. You can speak in the car. So as we spoke, the taxi driver said, well, you know, you speak about this TV show. Two hours ago, I picked up the, a lady who who was coming from there. I said, what was her address? And he gave my sister's mm. address. So he had picked up my sister, and now he was picking me two years later. I said, how many taxi drivers? 14,000. Okay, well, again, in the same day. Huh? So that's purely like winning the lottery. There's nothing strange. This is a very unlikely event, like, like winning the lottery. But there's nothing out of this world because it's normal for a guy to go and post a letter. It's normal for a taxi to take people. It just happened that they have my sister. So there's nothing extraordinary. It's just a, it's just a funny coincidence. But no, my teacher telling me that. Never, ever did he ask me about my childhood. You know, he asked me if I had parents, which I said, I have a very dear uncle. I said I was engaged in this, some studies when I first met him. He said, better you finish all that before coming to live here. That was in seven years about it, about my personal life. You know, my mother came there. So, but besides that, never asked me what I was doing when I was a child. We did like this, did I do that? Never. He always spoke about giving teachings, speaking about, you know, stories of Tibet, of other great masters of the past, telling stories or ordinary conversation of the day. So how come? And if it wasn't that he somehow has read my mind, why in the world would he ask such a weird question? It makes no sense. So it's not like a normal thing to do, like going to post a letter. Why anyone would ask this question out of the blue to someone who never asked about his past? At the moment, I was going to speak about that. So, you know, I have no other explanation that that was the most obvious is this. And not only that, but we have a lot of uh, similar stories. And when Wolfsinger came to Nepal and 
some of us started to tell the story. He says, stop it. You know, if any of, if one of these is true, we are in deep trouble. So I have no explanation except possibly reading the mind. That seems the only way I can imagine. But from the science, it doesn't make sense because the two brains would have to be in the same state to think the same thing at the same time. But at the same time, I cannot say that I didn't, uh, was not, didn't witness that. So I leave it as an open question. And my friend Francisco Varela was a great scientist. He was saying about all these things, about the ultimate nature of consciousness. Well, let's leave it open because that's how knowledge can progress. And uh, so far, we don't have explanation. And I don't want to give spooky ones because uh, I don't have one. I simply, it did happen. And I leave you with that. <laughs> food for thought. So a lot of food for thought, but... I guess just to add on to that, as a psychotherapist, I also prize high emphasis on rigor, especially now there's a lot of misinformation, disinformation. But I do want to share my own, I guess, opinions about what you shared, reading the book as well. So I believe in synchronicity and serendipity. And as you know, like people's hormones sync, hormonal energy, they do sync, like menstrual cycles. And a lot of people don't know this, but I did a lot of research where in the 1970s in the United States, there has been documented three series of scientific studies documenting telepathy and synchronizations of thoughts and images. So what they did is they put three people in three separate rooms in a household for this control study, three, three part series of scientific studies in the 1970s. They gave one controlled group certain sets of images to think about at night and over the time of the study control durations the other two people who never communicated with the first person the control group had the exact same sets of images in their dreams for the next week never conversed never talked to each other but their images in their minds synchronized with different people mm. and a lot of studies have been shown about twinning effects twins People study twins with similar thoughts and content. And I've experienced this with my clients, with my fiance. Just out of nowhere, we have the exact same thought ex at the exact same time. So I just wanted to share that as well. Wolfsinger also mentioned a study in Stanford, I think in the 70s, commissioned by the U.S. Army, putting people in submarines and trying to communicate like that. And he said, you know, it was not a big sample, but it seems interesting. So personally... You know, all these people, uh, you know, they are mediums who read future. And, I mean, I have no any trust in those. <laughs> but we say that at least in, just make it clear from the perspective of Tibetan Buddhism, you know, precisely when you have inner freedom, boundless compassion, your wisdom increase. But there are a number of capacity that comes with spiritual experience. So normally, this is not something that happened by accident. You know, some people are a little bit more gifted and they see it's really a side effect of spiritual realization. So from our perspective, I will be less uh, convinced until I see some real solid evidence about you know, normal folk having these kind of intuitions. But who knows? Again, we have to keep open, you know. But in Tibetan culture, it's really the result of advanced spiritual practice and it's more like a an extra thing that you are given, mm. like, you know, bonus almost. So if you don't mind, Matthew, since we're in the areas wishy-washy, as you called it, in chapter 36, you talk about reincarnation. We're just going to the, all the heavy waters. 
<laughs> so you documented in details your journey to find the reincarnate of a famous teacher, right? Given your intersection with your Buddhist identity and the rigor of your scientist background, how do you explain reincarnation, especially your PhDs in molecular genetics? You know, just to become, begin with an anecdote, once in Berkeley, I was with Paul Ekman and uh, another che- researcher called Levinson, and they were studying human conflict. You know, they studied with couples, and they wanted to see if a Buddhist monk can handle conf- <laughs> or diffuse conflict better. So they put me with two people. One was Professor Glazer. He was a Nobel, Pri- Nobel Prize of Physics. He found the, the Glazer bubble chamber, and then he studied the brain. And the, the, the question was how a scientist-trained person could believe in such stupid thing as reincarnation. <laughs> so with Professor Glazer, it went very, very well. You know, our physiolo- we were measuring everything in our physiology. We were very calm. And, and he w- at the end, he said, oh, I wish we could have more time to talk. And then, they, without telling the person, they put me with the so-called most difficult person in the campus <laughs> of Berkeley. <laughs> so he came in, and I said, you know, we're supposed to have a conflictual discussion. He said, no problem with me. He said, and then he went on, boom. And after 10 minutes, you know, they could see the physiology going down, 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 down. He was calming that. And at the end, he said, I can't fight with this guy. He's always smiling, <laughs> and he gives reasonable answer. And there's something about him that I cannot fight. So now, to be serious, this is a very big cultural divide. As much as this is goofy stuff here in the West, it is common in the culture or in Asia, both in Hinduism, Buddhism, and others. So that's to start with. Now, the real question is, what is the ultimate nature of consciousness? Because if the consciousness is 100% the functioning of the brain, as some neuroscientists postulate, but they all know that they are not there to claim it for sure. And consciousness is the question of the 21st century for neuroscience. If consciousness is 100% the brain, then forget about reincarnation. There's no question. It all stops and the, your brain goes back to earth. Now, if it's not the case, then you have a point. And there could be what was consciousness before, what it could be after. So what are the arguments from Buddhism? Well, it somehow goes back to Leibniz's question. Why is there something rather than nothing? You see? So the Buddhist answer is unless you bring God, you know, there's something because God created everything. And where you just have to acknowledge the existence of phenomena. You know, mm. it's sometimes, it is the nature of things that the world exists. You don't have to say, why does it exist? It does. You just have, so we call that a primary fact. And if you go back to, you know, atoms and particles and quarks and then quantum vacuum, why it is there? Well, it's there. That's it. <laughs> so, and then from several, you could, could be beginning without beginning. You know, that was Bertrand Russell said. There's no logic. It's difficult to imagine beginninglessness, but there's no logical flow. While the first cause, there has a lot of logical flows. You know, where that cause came from? You know, what was before? How, how did it become a first cause to start with? Anyway, de novo, you know, creating something from nothing is difficult. There's a Buddhist saying that a million cause cannot make something that does not exist coming to existence because non-existence is the concept we have of the absence of things. But the concept of the absence of something cannot be a cause. Anyway, so what about consciousness? Similarly, uh, going 
down to the quarks, the quantum vacuum, and so forth. You know, if you go introspectively to consciousness, you look at your consciousness. First, you see a lot of thoughts, memories, you know, things happening, and by the workings of your mind. Then you go deep within, you know, behind the screen of thought, this pure awareness that allows thoughts, the space of being aware, of being conscious, the basic cognitive faculty. Light itself, you know, light can shine on the heap of garbage, doesn't become dirty. Mm -hmm. Light shine on a heap of gold doesn't become expensive. Light is just revealed. So pure knowing doesn't need to have a content. You know, you can be pure awareness without conceptual content, without mental fabrication, just aware, purely aware. Now, if you reach there introspectively, no matter what scientists did, so it's called the first person experience. Well, the scientists, the third person experience, what happens in your brain? But they don't come to consciousness. And then when I look at pure awareness, I don't come to neurons. I don't even know I have a brain. They told me I have a brain, but I don't see, feel my brain. So I come to pure awareness, and that's it. I just have to acknowledge. So it's primary fact also. And the Western phenomenologists also agree on that. Consciousness is a primary fact because you cannot go out of consciousness to say, oh, I have a brain. Consciousness is made by this and that. You're already in the space of consciousness. So therefore, in the same way that the world cannot be created from nothing, we say that consciousness cannot just come out like that. Boom. It's not just the complexification of life, of neurons and so forth. There's a qualia there. There's not something that isn't conscious one instant and conscious the next, because that would be a change in nature. So we say that the one instant of consciousness now is triggered by preceding instant of consciousness. So just like the universe, from the Buddhist perspective, it has no beginning and no end. It is constant transformation. So that's the philosophical analysis of the idea of a continuum of consciousness. Now, when we discuss that with neuroscientists like Christoph Koch, who is the head of the Seattle uh, Institute, and I mentioned what would be the facts that if they were proven true, will go towards uh, saying that consciousness is not just 100% the brain. So there's a number of things like near-death experience, but that's not a very good one. Because so many things can happen when you are in, in the between life and death, you know, tons of neurotransmitters, a moment becomes a big time, you can imagine all kinds of things, a lot of gamma frequencies, you can have bliss and see all kinds of things, light tunnels of light. This is not, although it's very interesting, and this could be a life-changing experience if you come back, but that doesn't show anything about consciousness. You can see a paradise and all that. It's basically the functioning of your dying brain, and then you come back. Now, the two things that are left is remembering past lives, okay, or mind reading. So remember, past life is tricky. There's a lot of things happening in the world. There's a, a scholar in uh, Virginia, Ian Stevenson, who studied 200 ca or 600 cases all over the world, not only in Tibet. Kids who say, well, I was born there. This is my parents living in that village, my former life, and so forth. So he tried to see as a sociologist what was behind that, you know, mostly four or five years old boy and girls. And there are many striking stories, like in India, you know, at the time of Gandhi, there's a famous story, which I cannot, I have no time to tell you, but, you know, who knows? You know, these uh, people telling stories, they could have been breached by someone. So it is interesting. So Ian Stevenson, after 600 cases, 
analyzing them, he came with 20 cases, which says pointing toward reincarnation. That means there was no way that the child could know so much detail about the place or other people that are supposed to be there from her parents and die young, for instance. And he said the Occam razor is the simplest, is that they did remember something. But you know, when I discussed that with some scientists like Christoph Koch, he said, well, you know, we don't know how to handle that because there's no mechanism again. They don't say the study was flawed. They say we don't know. So it's just left like that and nobody know how to use that. But that's complicated because you see a lot, it requires a lot of uh, going around and as Stevenson did. So mind reading would be the simplest. But the problem is those great masters, you know, who sometimes show that capacity. And we say that they don't show that to impress people. They show that when if it's useful to a student. But if you ask them, they say, oh, no, I don't, I don't know anything about that because they don't want to, they want to remain humble. And it's not something that you boost about. So it's very unlikely that they will come to a lab just to prove mm -hmm. that and that they thought it would be good for humanity. So therefore, I'm afraid <laughs> it might remain for a while as an undecided question in terms of proving it. And also, synchronistic moment, I was literally talk thinking about consciousness. I had a question about consciousness, and you brought up consciousness, even though I never said the word. And we call also call that mm -hmm. flow state, right? Group flow when a group of people can synchronize on a certain brief wave wavelength. But I want to add, because I know about that study that you just referenced. I know one of the kids of the 20, she said she was a princess from England and she was able to disclose, never revealed, never documented declassified archaeological evidence about like very secret life of the queen and the princess from like hundreds of I years see. ago. And they couldn't because there was no Google back then. There was no AI. There was no way for her to access such information. And she was nine years old. So it's, it's unknowable, right? Well, you know, I've met a few people like that. All those who said they were Egyptian princes and all that. I don't know why they are not, you know, sweepers or something. <laughs> They're all something very fancy. <laughs> <laughs> so I little doubt. Anyway, I mean, one of the most striking cases, if you want to go, is Shanti Devi. She was a young girl. And in school, she always told her parents that she wants to go to a place called Merut, which is a few hundred kilometers from Delhi. And she kept on bugging their parents and they're beating her. And then the teacher at one point said, you know, what happens with this girl? She always wants to go to there. And she was also speak the dialect of that place, which she, her parents didn't speak. And she was describing, she said, my husband, I died when I, we were young and my husband said he would not remarry and he, he kept some money somewhere under the floor and this and that. And so very, very precise how the house looked like. So finally, Gandhi sent a few people there, elder people, reliable people to see. And they found immediately the place. He gave the names and all that. So they were kind of shocked. You know, she died, she died before her husband. So the husband didn't go. But he sent his brother and say, I'm saying I'm your husband. So he came to Delhi and the girl immediately said, you are not my husband. You are my mm. brother. And once you even teased me and all that. So he was freaked out. So he went back and finally the girl was there, went there. And then on the platform, they all, everyone waiting. And she saw her former grandfather and she jumped into him or grandpa. And she went to the house and she said, here's the place where uh, we had hidden the money for for you and you remarried and you said you were not so anyway so anyway it was like that a big story with a lot of details my girl we have absolutely no reason to know all that 
So it's one of those things that you go, why? Well, you know, what to make about that again? So I don't know. You know, me, I'm puzzled as a scientist, like anyone should be. And But these things uh, did happen in history, and we have to somehow take it into account. And it's ad- somehow anecdotal. You know, science needs to be done in control condition where you can repeat it in similar condition, and you have to have a control group and all that. So this is not possible. So it's possibly that science can never, but at the same time, an accumulation of anecdotal evidence at the end, it starts building up a case. That's the only thing we could say. But anyway, again, I'm not here to convince people. I know it's puzzling, and I myself uh, don't see any explanation other than that. And I'm not into pushing that like anything, but it just happened. So what to do? It's like the nature, right? So um, the underlying theme of what you're saying, Matthew, is the interconnectedness of all of us, whether you view consciousness as an emerging phenomenon or not. Dr. Paul Conti, a famous psychiatrist, describes consciousness as an emerging phenomenon. Practically speaking, like what can we take away about why it's important for us to keep an open mind and respect and almost revere that there are certain parts of life there will never be concrete answers because I think we like concreteness, like reductionistic, right? What can we practically take away from what we just said? Whenever, you know, some people said it's like try to reach the horizon, you know, we never reach because the horizon keeps going further. So when that argument was given, I remember Christoph Kort said, well, you know, in past, many said that about particular uh, scientific questions, and in the end, they were solved. Mm. So it's simply to keep an open mind that possibly there would be a way to to decide on those questions, and, and not just uh, you know, you know, extraterrestrial life, for instance. Nowadays, with all these exoplanets, in probably there are millions, or if not more, of them. There's most likely there's some kind of life somewhere. But I remember, you know, about the SETI project was trying to listening to, you know, waves coming from, I don't know, maybe quite optimistic. Uh, there was a, a, a scientist in Europe say, well, you know, even some green men are, are in my garden, I will close the window and continue to work. <laughs> so that's not the attitude we should have. But there, there are some, probably some. So let's just keep an open mind to that. We probably discover many more things and many more mechanisms, many more possibilities. I thought a lot about how to conduct this conversation with you since you represent so many just a rich background and so many intersections but i do want to go into the scientific realm uh since we're on the train so i love your Karl popper quote in your book a theory that in principle cannot be refuted that is unfalsifiable is not a scientific theory it's an ideology can you elaborate what you shared in chapter five about your seemingly conflicting rigor of a scientist in your Buddhism, because we've been talking about things that are unfalsifiable in a sense. Well, you know, there's, there was a theory, for instance, which I debunked, um, not me, but I, I, I pulled out all the philosophers who debunked it about universal selfishness. Mm. That's in the, in the altruism book. And some people say, well, you know, if you look in depth, you will always find a, a, a selfish motive, no matter what. But that's unfalsifiable. You cannot falsify that. Because you can always have an explanation. You know, uh, you gave a fruit to a kid who is asking you for a fruit. 
Okay. No, it's not uh, altruistic because the, the kids were bothering you mm. and then you just give that to keep it quiet. So it's not altruistic. So you can always find an explanation and it's nothing you can uh, prove if that expl- that theory explains every possible uh, experimental result. You can always find a, a selfish explanation and that then that's finished because you, you cannot disprove it. So that's why you need experiments. And that's why, for instance, Daniel Batson did for altruism over 25 years or more. He did 35 different kinds of very clever experimental settings, putting people in situation and showing that, yes, there were people who were genuinely altruistic. Even they didn't, it was not about feeling some self gratification or for instance, if there was a cause for themselves, all these things, when the arguments were given, or maybe this is the selfish explanation, he would find experimental setting and device to put people in such situation that you could eliminate that explanation. And after third different settings, he said, well, at the end, this is clear that genuine altruism does exist. We are not all altruistic all the time, but it exists as a state of mind. It's not that we are universally selfish, and that was based on 30 years of experiments. So a theory that you cannot disprove because always a, you know, you go to see a psychoanalyst, you are before time, he say you are anxious. You are right on time. You say you are, you are obsessed by perfection and you are late. So you are avoiding me. So in any case, there is an explanation to prove that the person has a problem. <laughs> so how can you get out of that? Yeah, I feel personally attacked as a psychotherapist, but I, I never said that to my patient. No, not psychotherapist. Psycho- huh? Psychoanalyst. Psychoanalyst. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do agree that that's a confirmation bias, right? If you have a certain belief, you uphold it you will find ways to intellectualize it and makes whatever fits your belief system or operating system. I want to go into the similar train, but take a little soft pivot because with everything you sent me to you, I sense underlying humility is yes, you subscribe to the rigor of your scientific training and evidence and empirical data while being open-minded and accepting that there is things are unknowable. So in chapter 16, you talk about meeting and learning from the Dalai Lama. You reference his great humility along with your other masters, despite being the most well-known spiritual teachers of the generation. How do you explain the oxymoron of those who possess the faculty of humility (laughs) while also being the best at what they do? Well, there is a beautiful example in Buddhist literature. You say a fruit tree, which has no fruit, the branch go proudly towards up to the sky. When there's lot of fruits, the branch go low because it's heavy with fruits. So humility is a natural expression of wisdom, of knowing the immensity of what is to be known, of knowing that pride is a mental toxins mm. that undermine your own happiness and that of others. You know, arrogant people are no fun to be around. You don't feel good around them. And then you cannot really feel good within yourself. 
So humility is a natural understanding that there's so much to learn, and also that pride is a pride is a poison. So it's not a fabricated thing; it's a natural, natural thing. And it's true that all my teachers were incredibly humble despite their boundless qualities. You no, know, I, I described the meeting of uh, my second teacher, Digo Kensei Moshe, with the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama wanted to receive teaching from him, so he would come every, almost every year for a week or so. Dalama's residence and offer him teaching. And they were actually who would be lower than the other, you know? They were kind of rivality, try to sit lower than the other and be more humble. When my teacher would come to the Dalama's porch, he would prostrate, he would try to prostrate three times on the floor, but he was old and heavy, so he could only once. Dalama had done three times in between. And so it was, you know, a wonderful lesson that to see those two suns of like shining, like two suns shining in the room of, of joy, of wisdom, of kindness, and at the same time so humble. And once I also, two great scholars came from Tibet to a monastery in Nepal and they came to see Kensar Rinpoche and he knew them well. And he said, Oh, while you are here, why don't you teach uh, for a while at our philosophical college? And one of them said, Oh, you know, I know nothing. And also he knows nothing. <laughs> So he was humble for two, and the other one was nodding, you know. So we say the water of quality doesn't dwell on the rock of pride. So humility is a natural uh, consequence of, you know, spiritual achievement. My teacher would always say, until me excluded, all my teacher, the teacher were enlightened. And they were incredibly, all of them were humble. Going full circle into how we started this conversation with happiness and the core ingredients of happiness, which is compassion and wisdom, I think humility is a prerequisite to achieve wisdom to begin with. Well, yes, of course. Yes, it is. Because if you think you know everything, why should you learn and, and work hard? So, okay. I want to use as a segue into going to the... I guess like the meaning making of this world, because I think our ability to make meaning is also what makes us humans. But I think to make meanings, it also requires humility. So I'm going to ask you this question. In your book, someone asked you about like, what is the meaning of life, which is one of the biggest philosophical questions, right? Just like, what is consciousness? And you told them in your book that... I'm just grateful that I get to make meaning to my life. Can you elaborate on that? Mm, it's inspired by what the Dalai Lama said. He said, the point is not to find the meaning of life, you know, a big thing, but how can I give meaning to my life? Because the you know, meaning of life is so vast, it's so unprecise. So, of course, Buddhism has some idea how to make, give me, not to waste your life in distraction, in pursuit of fame, image and all this stuff that only bring disappointment and uh, disillusion, but to really use your life to progress from ignorance to wisdom, from suffering to the freedom from suffering. So basically to follow the path of transformation that leads to enlightenment. So that's really to have a precious human life and, and extract the quintessence of human life. And uh, Seneca, the philosopher, said, it's not that we don't have much time, it's that we waste mm -hmm. a lot. 
So giving meaning to time, you know, sometimes people who know they have only one year to live and they live that year very fully with their loved ones, appreciating nature, looking at the sky, looking at birds. And they say it was the most rich, fulfilling year I ever lived. Well, we should live every moment like that because we are actually, that is certain, but the time of that is unpredictable. No, we say, I should feel fortunate to breathe in again when I breathe out. So we should value time, not being obsessed, like frantically, you know, making like as much out of the time, but really appreciating its value and not wasting it to completely useless and meaningless things, preoccupations. I think I have a question for you that you would appreciate. Uh, I want to use this question, take a moment to honor your mom, mother as well. One of my favorite stories in your book is your mom first experienced spiritual teaching from Mother Teresa and then your uh, master and decided to make vows to become a, na- a nun, even with the family. In response to your mother saying that she has a family, your master asked, if you can guarantee that you will be alive this time next year, then you can wait. It's such a simple yet profound question because life is not guaranteed, like what you just said. Yes, that's right. Um, can you, any thoughts there? Well, you know, to think, to meditate on impermanence and death is not a morbid thing. It's not, oh, I'm going to die, I'm going <laughs> to die, so why should I do anything? No, it's to give value to every moment because, it, you know, if it's, I know I die in three days, I'm not going to mend my socks. <laughs> I'm going to do know what is most meaningful i don't know practice think of my teacher meet uh, say a bye bye to m- many of my wonderful friends you know what i can use the time in the most meaningful way so the idea you know p- people ask me you know can you come n- next year in october and they, oh, who knows we'll be alive you know they say oh are you sick or something no but <laughs> i can die tomorrow what are you talking about so the thing is a bit strange sometimes but it is like that so if we think like that Again, it's not morbid. When the death come at, actually comes, you know, you're already familiar with it. It's like almost like a friend. You know, you're not shocked. Oh, I'm going to die. You know, okay, this is this is a time it comes, and you can be in pra- practice if you if you are lucid and think of your you know a contemplative state to cross that threshold. But if you start panicking and say, oh, I should have practiced before better, and all that is too late. So again, it is not to. F- to feel into kind of negative attitude, oh, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, why should I do anything? But to really infuse every moment with the sparkling quality of appreciating and wonder and awe of every moment of life. Yeah, like memento mori. Because you know it could be, it could be, it may not last for long. Yeah, I, I love the impermanence aspect of Buddhism and also Stoic philosophy, memento mori. And also, that's the nature of things. You know, as one of my Buddhist friends said, it's like the law of gravity. Whether you acknowledge it or not, it's there. <laughs> so impermanence is the nature of things. You don't have to. It's not a theory or it's not a dogma. This is the way things are. So if you don't recognize it, you get attached to all yourself, your object, your dear one. But if you know there's changes coming, then you don't grasp so intensely. And then you don't suffer so much when things change because they change all the time. Yeah, change is the only constant. I want to go into your meditation practice. And obviously, you're the expert on meditations <laughs> uh, as the world's happiest man. You kept up your meditation practice for at least 30 minutes every day since your first trip 
back from India more than 50 years ago, at least 30 minutes. More than that, I hope. <laughs> so the best I heard about meditation is you meditate to improve the quality of your life, not to master meditation. Can you care to add anything? <laughs> I don't know uh, whether that corresponds exactly. For meditation, you know, it's a very vague term in, in English. Sanskrit word, dhyan, uh, bhavana, means to cultivate. So you cultivate some qualities, some skills, also some knowledge, the better knowledge of how the nature of mind, how the mind functions. And the Tibetan word, gom, is also to become familiar. So you could be familiar with altruism and compassion. As you learn, you become familiar with playing the piano, or it could be become familiar with, again, this pure awareness that lies behind the thoughts that you, it's there, but you don't, you are not used to see it. So you become more, start knowing it, become familiar with it. So it's a process. So it's not just stopping and emptying your mind in a mango tree that doesn't <laughs> work. The mind will not remain empty anyway. It's a lost cause. And also you should not block thoughts because they will, they will not stop. You can just let it go like a bird through the sky, or you can multiply it. Why did that to me? Why not me? Why me? So that then the chain reaction. But if a thought comes, they will come. So then you let it go, and then there's no problem. So all kinds of things, that's part of meditation. So meditation is also about cultivating specific qualities. So training the mind for attention. Without attention, you cannot meditate without compassion. Because you are, if your mind is daydreaming, around the world, and you are not meditating on compassion, you are just distracted all the time. So attention is the, or mindfulness is the basic tool. It's not a goal in itself, but it's the tool indispensable to cultivate any other quality, like inner peace, inner freedom, dealing with thought, dealing with emotions, increasing altruism, compassion. You need to be a mind that is stable and calm and focused. Otherwise, what are you going to do uh, if you are distracted all the time? So all those processes are meditation. And so the, as many times of, as many kinds of meditation as they are training. If you tell someone, hey, I'm training. And he says, what? Uh, football or ping pong? So that's the same. Meditation is training the mind in different ways. It doesn't need to be, you know, a forcible training. It could be just resting in equanimity in the nature of mind. But it's, it, it, you need to be familiar with that. It doesn't come so naturally to most people. So that's the that's the point. So yes, I've been trying to keep that. You know, hopefully more than thirty minutes a day, like uh, <laughs> I know in the morning and afternoon. And when we do retreats, then it's almost like whole day, and you know we get up very early, and so more with breaks. But mostly we practice eight, ten, twelve hours a day, but not in a tense, forcible way, in a flowing sort of. Uh, you know, there's a uh, the concept of flow by Ching Sheng Milai. So I met him a few times. He's a, he was a wonderful man. And, you know, the description of flow that you it's not too difficult, not too easy, and you enter the flow, and it's effortless, and you lose the sense of self, and you lose the sense of effort and time. So, but usually it's connected with, uh, you know, self-riding, mountain climbing, being a surgeon or something. So I, I discussed with him, and we agreed that, uh, you know, this profound meditation on awareness is a kind of flow but without physical activity. Otherwise, most of the criteria for flow and the sense of sort of fulfillment when you do that uh, apply to somehow meditation. So, yeah, I do know the science of flow pretty well, right? You need to have a certain level of challenge, a little bit of discomfort and full awareness. You achieve flow state. 
I have a question for you, Matthew. I've been asking questions, but I have more questions. Where in the beginning, we talked about the West, especially the United States of America. We have this very oversimplified, fixated versions of what happiness is and this incessant, endless pursuit of happiness, which is more pleasure like. Similarly, I think a lot of Americans now, after the Beatles, Popularized meditations in the West after they brought it back from India. I think a lot of people get caught up in meditate every day optimally, optimizations of your mind so you can get more productive, more efficient. Do you see any, I guess, pearls or harm in meditating for the sake of like productivity and optimization? You know, inevitably, when John Kabat Zinn, who's a very good friend of mine, uh, and others like, you know, Daniel Goldman, Richard Davidson, all together, almost 30 or more years ago, they started to, you know, John Kabazin specifically, the mindfulness-based stress reduction program. Uh, you know, you could not possibly bring something called meditation uh, in the clinical world. He was working in Boston. But he clearly, the patients, you know, the undergoing difficult treatments like uh, chemotherapy and others, as well as the caregivers who are in state of burnout and very stressed, doctors and nurses and so forth. There was a lot of stress, and stress is it's good when you run away from a rhinoceros, but it's <laughs> not good when it's chronic and it uh, depletes your your immune system and it's bad for the neurons. So stress is good in, in stressful situations, but not all the time. If the alarm bell rings all the time, it's no good. So there was clearly a problem with stress, and he thought that mindfulness-based stress reduction was a good entrance door. He could not possibly, even he had studied in Burma, and he's not a Buddhist himself, but he certainly drew from Buddhist practice and methods. There was no way to to bring up a Buddhist practice. You know, the people would have shouted like anything in the schools or anywhere. But it has to be secular. It's the only way you could have a truck driver, an university professor, and doctors and doing the same thing and following that program. And over 30 years, it had tremendous positive effect in the world. You know, when he gave a summary of 30 years of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of all these uh, interventions in, in one of the Mind and Life meetings in Phoenix, it was very moving because it's uh, in hospitals in Hong Kong and China and all over the world. So now, yes, it is uh, somehow uh, kind of taking the, in a nutshell some of the tools taken from Buddhist practice. And it's not embedded in the whole Buddhist path. You're not trying to get enlightened. You're not trying to get boundless compassion, although you become a better human being, hopefully, and you grow more some compassion, but it's not this unlimited goal of enlightenment. It's to be mindful in the present moment, and it's a very, very useful tool for many things, and it has to be secular. So it is by nature also not, again, embedded in a much richer uh, sort of incredible, wonderful system of Buddhist philosophy and practice that is so much faster. So it's just one tool. Nevertheless, it does a lot of good. So at the same time, there's a lot of so also possibly you know, misuse of meditation for, for very petty purposes. And that's personally why I like the notion of, uh, you know, caring mindfulness. Mm. I discussed that with John Kabazin because you see, a sniper who has been ordered to wait and ambush someone, no, he's very mindful. He cannot be distracted. 
he should not be carried away by his emotions. He should be always in the present moment and non-judgmental because uh, he's going to kill that guy. He's just have to say, oh, he's a nice guy. After all, I don't want to kill him. He, that's what's his job. <laughs> so you could say he feels the, some of, you know, of course, it's an exaggeration and it's caricature, but basically it could fulfill some of the criteria of non-judgmental being in the present moment. But that's not going to lead you to enlightenment. So, but it is no caring psychopaths and no caring snipers <laughs> because then they would not shoot someone. So I know it's an extreme example, but if we have caring mindfulness, there's no problem. You won't use that to squeeze people at work so that they give more work for in the same time and don't feel too stressed in a completely, you know, pitiless way because then you will not be caring for their well-being. And so I think Although if the mindfulness based frustration is done by proper instructor and so forth, the component of kindness and compassion does come out, of course. But I think to state it from the start, it will, uh, you know, uh, take away many of those misconceptions and misuse possible. And uh, that's why when I was asked to, you know, lead some mindfulness meditation at the infamous World Economic Forum in Davos, I, I, I will do caring mindfulness so that there's no possible confusion about you know, squeezing your employees to get out more out of them because they are less stressed. <laughs> so it's all about the intention, sounds like. That's why in Buddhism, the intention is absolutely fundamental. When we start something, a meditation or anything, first we check our intention. We cannot always predict the consequences of our actions even with the best intention. But we can always check our action. Am I doing that only for me to pursue my completely selfish interest or for others? If I do it also for others, is it for a small number or the larger number? If it's for the larger number, if it's for, for the short-term benefit or long-term benefit. So ideally, for the greater number, for long-term benefit, you must think and think. So we said that, uh, the intention colors, you know, if you put a crystal or a glass on the red cloth, it becomes red. If on blue cloth, it becomes blue. So we say the intention is what colors your action. So if your intention is right, the path and the result will be right. If the intention is wrong, you may be very sweet, flattering people, and the only thing you want is to cheat them. Uh, if your intention is good, you could be quite rough. You know, a mother that pushes her kids is going to run her over by a car. No, she's not, uh, no, it, it seems brutal. She's pushing it away, but it, she saved the kid's life. So the action looks brutal, but the intention was to save the life. If you go to an old lady and say sweet words because you want to get her inheritance, uh, the action is kind of nice looking, but the intention is uh, very selfish and mean. So intention is really what matters most. I love your metaphors. Intention colors your actions, so visual. I do want to talk about altruism. You brought it up earlier in the conversation, and I know you're very, very big on altruism, humanitarian effort. And I personally always thought that pure, unadulterated, absolute altruism is not possible because there's always a small hint, flavor of self-gratification. There is a famous term in sociology coined by a social worker. We call it effective altruism. Regardless of self-gratifications, if you're making a positive effect 
based on your intention, that's all that matters. Uh, care to add anything or, you know, share about your perspective? Well, effective altruism is a movement that I really uh, think is very important. I know I'm quite a good friend with Peter Singer, mm. who wrote a book, The Most Good You Can Do. And it, it, basically, we try to apply that in our, uh, our Karuna Sechen, our humanitarian organization that helps 400,000 people now every year in India, Nepal, and other places. And so the efficient altruism is if you have some time and resources and capacity, how best use it to, re to remove suffering? Are you going to spend a million on one person or are you going to save 10,000 lives in Africa for the same amount of money? So that's the, that's the question. Now, altruism is, um, I think we, it needs to, we need to stress its importance, uh, as a only concept that can cope with the challenges of the 21st century. Because we are facing a kind of a very difficult, you know, challenge to bring together the short term needs, mid term and very long term. It wasn't the case when, uh, you know, 10,000 years ago, there was 5 million human beings on Earth. You know, there were hunter-gatherers until they started settling uh, 10,000 years ago. So there was plenty of everything everywhere. There was no competition. So, and they, the impact they had, already they had some impact about big animals being eliminated, but minor on the planet. So they were not really influencing the fate of future generations. Now, after the industrial revolution, the scientific revolution, the boom of technology in the 1950s, the great acceleration, we entered the Anthropocene. We became the major force that shapes the fate of future generation and the biodiversity and everything. And we know how we starting to mess it in a big way. So that's a new challenge. And we don't feel personally responsible because nobody wakes up in the morning thinking I'm going to wreck the planet. But the accumulation of our actions and the increase of population, increase of our power on the environment has led to that unfortunate consequence that we have a environmental changes that have never happened in millions of years at such a speed and is clearly the result of human activity. So now how can you put around the same table a mother in Africa who wants to feed their kids in the next week? That's her main preoccupation. A politician or an investor or a social worker who is trying to improve the situation for over the next 10 years at the workplace, at the transport, in, in standard of living, in people wanting to fulfill their aspiration to find a happy life and fulfill, have a good life, and not forgetting the fate of future generation. Otherwise, like as Greta Thunberg said, we are actually traitors to the future generation, and they will say, you knew and you did nothing. So now, my favorite Marxist was Groucho Marx. He said, you know Groucho Marx, mm -hmm. the Marx brothers? Mm -hmm. He said, why should I care for future generations? What did they do for me? Well, I heard the American billionaire, which I'm not going to name, saying on Fox News about the race of the ocean, I find absurd to change my behavior now for something happening in 100 years. Maybe he has no children or grandchildren. So that's typically, okay, forget it. I do what I want. And, uh, you know, they will see, they will manage, they will find something. That's total selfishness. So in the end, the environment question is a question of altruism versus selfishness. 
So selfishness gone going to do the job. Otherwise, you'll get uh, you know free riders economy. Everybody trying to make the most and disconsidering others, including cheating and all that. You'll get total disconsideration for social justice and welfare and all that. And you don't care a damn for future generations because you're not going to be there. So that's not going to work. Once I remember, I went with the Bhutanese delegation on this gross national happiness at the United Nations. And I was given four minutes to speak about the inner side of happiness. And I basically said, well, a nation that is the most powerful and the richest and where everyone is unhappy, what's the point? Mm. No, maybe economists can say, well, compassion is nice, but it's not about economy. Mm. But if they say they don't care, they don't care about poverty in the midst of plenty, they don't care about future generations, no, that discourse doesn't go anymore. Even some people do think that. So I think that's why I think it's such a pragmatic concept. It's not an utopia or a feel-good theory. Cooperation is the only chance of, you know, of getting out of that trouble. And I'm not the only one to say that, of course. Bertrand Russell said that, Kofi Annan said that, cooperation is the only hope. And cooperation is a positive cooperation where altruistic come together and work together for a better world. So I think that's why I was passionate about spending five years solid and documenting and researching this book on altruism, which has 1,600 scientific references. And I got almost a altruism post-traumatic syndrome <laughs> after finishing it because I worked so hard. <laughs> And just to write another 800-page book with these notebooks of a wandering monk. So some friends of mine say, can you write a 100-page book for once? But, you know, when you're passionate about something, it's difficult to make it too simplistic. Yeah, not to mention you have published 22 books, which is insane. I don't know, because not, I was not very good at school, and <laughs> my, my, my teacher probably know more I like, but I would, would be quite surprised. <laughs> but... I wanted to ask you altruism question because I read your epilogue. Yeah, oh, yes, yes, your yes. parting message was about altruism, and that we have to uncover, reveal, and double down on altruistic acts because that is the only yes. hope for the twenty first century. So, because it is a practical way, and it's, the, it's not a altruistic, I mean, a utopian ideal. We should recognize that selfishness is not going to do the job. You know, Ayn Rand said, in my philosophy, altruism is immoral, evil. And she wrote a book, The Virtue of Selfishness. Sorry, that's not going to take us into a better world. So we need to recognize that there's scientific evidence abundantly that we are more inclined, even though we can become psychopaths, we can become commit mass murder, or what's happening now with some dictators, you know, you know very well in Ukraine and other places. This can happen. But, you know, if you look at young kids, they are more inclined to cooperation and uh, appreciating people who behave well with each other. It's abundantly documented by science. So even though we can become psychopaths and mass murderers, there's a greater tendency to work together, to appreciate altruism, to feel good, the banality of goodness. You know, when we speak of a crapulous crime, ideous crime somewhere, everybody speaks all over the world on the TVs now. But if 100 people in Los Angeles go to help the elders, it's not going to make the evening news because somehow this is more what we are. So we don't see the banality of goodness and we are polarized on the on the deviations of heinous 
behavior because this is frightening. Evolution equipped us to react to potential dangers. You know, you don't congratulate yourself coming out of a train or a plane or a theater saying, well, that's nice. Nobody start fighting on each other because that's what is normal. And if two people fight, then you say, oh, these two guys fight, you know, and you will tell everybody. So we should recognize that. We should recognize that being as social animals, working together, expressing to the best the capacity we have for love, for, for altruism, for compassion, for caring for each other. As Martin Luther King said, we came on different boats. Now we are all on the same vessel. We should recognize that. And that's the only hope. So we should teach the scientific evidence and the, the, this fact in school. We should not be shy of saying that. We are not imposing some weird religious moral values. People resent. You know, people say that schooling should be value neutral. The kids will find their own value and other. Where they'll find the value? In computer games, when everybody kill each other every two seconds, they will find some value, but not the right one. So who can be against altruism, against honesty, against friendship, against being a trustable person? You know, if you say, is there a universal value? I remember there was an opinion poll about people between below 25 all over the world. And the majority, surprisingly, more than 50% said there are no universal value. Why? Because if you ask a Pakistani if there's universal value, they will think, oh, they are going to bring Western values, or a Chinese will think the same. But if you ask, is honesty a universal value? Is friendship a universal value? Is kindness a universal value? They all say yes. But they don't want to be opposed a system, a moral system of a particular religion, a particular culture. But if those, those basic values taken individually, of course, we are for it. Who doesn't want kindness? We thirst desperately for kindness. So why should it not be a, a value that we think is wise cultivating and spreading around? And there's uh, so many benefits. It's crazy. And hatred, you think it's it's not a, a universal evil. Who is going to promote hatred as a as a virtue? It's cra- it doesn't make sense. So there are states of mind which are detrimental to our happiness and detrimental to others' happiness. Hatred is one of them. Discrimination is one of them. Jealousy, pride are as others' one. And there are some which contribute to the well-being of everyone, especially kindness. So that's I think we should recognize and then no have no fear. But our education is just about solving problems, sharpening your intelligence, and then you miss become better, better human being. They say, oh, that's the family should do that. But now the families have been raised in the same neutral things. They're also lost quite often. So basic human values in a secular way, that's what Delama speaks about, secular ethics, this is fundamental because we want to become first a good human being so that we thrive in life and also a good person in society not a nuisance <laughs> no i that's i think your your head is glowing um but i, I that was <laughs> maybe the shampoo you're using but i love your optimism and compassion and the seeking the universal values to go a full circle with your faith in buddhism siddhartha the boy who became the buddha i know he obviously was born into great wealth and he left the city and he saw the poverty, the injustice, the horrible things. And then he concluded that sufferings is originated from desires. 
what I like to focus on, given your altruism and this emphasis on compassion, he didn't give up and just got depressed and said, oh, I give up. Let me go back to my prince life. He chose to do something about it. And I think that's altruism, extending a part of ourselves in the hopes and compassion of others. Well, you know, it's a process. You know, when I did the monk and the philosopher that changed my, you know, I deliberately left Pasteur Institute to go to the mountains, but the monk and the philosopher, the first book that brought me back to the West and I was because I'm here, because of the monk and philosopher, I'm here with you today. Otherwise, I would be completely unknown in the Himalayas. It really changed 25 years of milestone, which I didn't plan. It just fell upon me. You know, there was someone asked me the questionnaire. He said, what, do you have a regret in life? They say, one regret I had is I'd really try my best to cultivate compassion, loving kindness to the extent of my capacity. You know, I'm not any stellar meditator, but I try my best. But I could not put it in action hands on. You know, pure heart, dirty hands. So the more kind of philosopher was either the beginning of my trouble or beginning of an opportunity. Because I decided to dedicate 100% of royalties of all my books, conferences, photography, and all that, exhibitions, to these uh, first projects we did uh, without any association. Then we founded Karuna Sechen after a number of years, and now it has branches in the U.S. and everywhere. So this was missing, putting compassion in action. So I'm very glad that thanks to all these new circumstances with the books and conferences and meeting people, not only the books, of course, many people join us, philanthropists. Uh, now we have a wonderful set of benefactors, small and big. So we could do, save probably a few hundred thousand lives and help millions of people. So it's a kind of, uh, I'm happy to have done that and uh, can rejoice and dedicate the merit. And uh, it brings me a lot of happiness. Yeah, my favorite quote from Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., MLK, is everyone is a saint and a sinner. And I think we get to choose what part of ourselves that we want to uphold more by being more compassionate. Well, I can't remember literally one of his quotes, but it's something like either we will go towards compassion or we will die as stupid and selfish people. It's not exactly the word, but the spirit is like that. And I also love that. Yeah. Um, I love your I love your grace. I love your optimism. And I love all the work you've done. They're just I, I didn't ask you about your photographer stuff, your photos, which is amazing. There's so <laughs> many parts about you, but I mean this. I Well, that's the one of the only thing I'm still doing, you know, besides translation. I you know I focus on translating Buddhist texts from Tibetan to English and French. And photography is my favorite way to distract myself. So I have a project of painting with light, which is actually the definition of photography. You know, photography. So that may give a lot of freedom to to improvise. Oh, things. paintings with light. Oh, but well, photography means writing with light. Oh, yes. I didn't know that. Oh, wow, that's cool. But I know a <laughs> lot of people don't know every photos in your books are by you. So I just want to put it out there. Well, not except uh, I don't do selfies. <laughs> <laughs> Except selfies, except <laughs> selfies. But well, I did uh, about ten photo books, uh -huh. yes. and they're amazing. Seriously, they're majestic. They're amazing, amazing photos. Right. Seriously, thank you. Um, Good. with that being said, Matthew, all right, we're towards the end, and I just want to create opportunity for people to find you, get your book. Uh, where can people find you? Maybe share your website, your book, and anything you want to share today. Well, there is a 
website, which has my name, is some friend wanted to do. I was a bit reluctant, but anyway. And then there's the website of Karuna Sechen. You can maybe put it uh, in letters, but it's complicated to write. Then there's a session.org, which is for our monastery. And my, the book is uh, Notebooks of a Wandering Monk. It's published by MIT Press. It's just uh, coming out now. And uh, so, you know, probably it's possibly the last book of that kind I do. Now I want to go back to translation. So I think the the full circle happened now. The main subject I wanted to deal with, like altruism, meditation, happiness, and uh, science, dialogue with science, you know, you cannot repeat itself endlessly. So I think it's a good way to end writing, writing books and going back to contemplative life, to the hermitage, and to a little bit of photography. And then translation, and uh, if I have a few more le- years to live, then, you know, I'm so happy to continue like that. And my motto at the end is to transform myself to better serve others. So that's, I think, what keep on inspiring me. Yeah. Thank you for spending the time with this old monk. The wandering monk. <laughs> uh, and I thank you oh, to Helen monk. for sending me the PDF version of your book before it was released. And you have plenty of time to recover from your 1,600 pages of PTSD uh, so you can rest and recover. Thank you so much, yeah, Thank you so much, Matthew.